All right, perfect. As we were saying, though, um, so COVID-19, how has that been handled over there in, in, uh, in Vancouver, in the Canada area with the new surge of the new, sh- the new strain? How has that been handled? Look, it's been interesting as, you know, one day to the next is more interesting than the, the one that was uh, the, the prior day, it seems. But look, I think we're, we've peaked now in terms of the Omicron variant. Um, there is all sorts of talk here in Canada about relaxing some of our uh, mandates. Some of the other provinces across the country, not British Columbia, where I live, um, are already talking about capacity limits being dropped, mask mandates being dropped. Um, the federal government is talking about relaxing some of the entry testing requirements. So, you know, I, I think that w- there's very clearly been a shift in viewing this um, f- or change in viewing this as a pandemic to viewing it as something that is endemic and that is just going to be with us like the common cold or flu. And I I think that's really for us to continue on as a society. We really do need to get to that place. How's it been for you? Pretty much the same. I think going on like the the actual illness itself and, and the way that I think folks are experiencing it from the research that I've done and some of the colleagues that I've spoke with and and even some of the friends recently that had that has that have you know that that have encountered the the new strain from what I've heard it it is starting to turn and shift into more of that um typical flu or cold like feeling rather than I think you know the the second what was that variant called uh, the delta uh, well, I guess the, the Delta, my, myself and my fiance, my wife, we, we, we were, I don't know if you remember that mountain. She spent, I think I'm, maybe I had told you, but she spent 10 plus days in the hospital, yeah, I remember. Um, Terrible. two, two months on a, on a, on an oxygen machine at home. Um, didn't work for that entire time as well. Clearly. Cause you know, you're talking oxygen 24 seven to do anything. Um, so from the research I've done, from what I've heard, it's starting to kind of even shift from like a again, like a feelings perspective and uh, to, to more of that common cold or common flu. Obviously, there's still horrible situations happening across the world, but I'm, I'm hearing it's starting to level off a little bit. Yeah, I would I would suggest the same. Uh, I have family members in different parts of the world and definitely hearing similar thoughts around mm. people just really starting to want to get on with things too, right? And yeah. even even alongside the health advisories and there's obviously still a, a, a press for people to continue to be vaccinated and to get boosters and whatnot. But I think just broadly speaking, there is a desire for us to continue on and we've got to learn to live with this. I think for those of us who are vaccinated, um, hopefully the, the symptoms and the impact will be relatively minor if you do get COVID, um, especially the Omicron variant. Um, and who knows, there's likely another variant to come, right? But of course, I, I think it's just finding ourselves going into the third year of a global pandemic is quite fatiguing. And I know that, you know, my, myself, I feel like I've been exceedingly cautious over the past two years. And, and I've been feeling lately that I've really just wanted to have in-person meetings and I've wanted to go and engage with people and have kind of felt like, well, you know, it's, it's probably just time to get on with it now. And there's a chance I'm going to get sick, but hopefully it won't be as, um, you know, terrible as it might've been if I wasn't vaccinated. Um, but 
yeah, I, I don't know where we, we draw the line, right? And where we as society just decide that it's time to, mm. to get on with it. And maybe we're already there. I, I, I'm not sure. Mm, that's true. I think the last thing I'll say on this is, um, so I'm relatively still young, though I look like I'm 49. I always joke around and say that. Um, even though 49 is not old either. So let me, I guess not, <laughs> I'm know, almost, I'm any... almost 49 and I don't feel very old. <laughs> You, you, you looked, you look 25, <laughs> you know? Um, but, uh, so being, you know, I'm 31 being at that age, I have uh, my fiance, her, her sister just turned 21. So, you know, I still have enough pep in my step and enough energy left to, um, hit the town, if you will. <laughs> and, uh, and we, I tested, I tested the waters for the first time in two years, um, we went out to just a, a local area. You know how it is, the strip of just constant bars and thousands upon thousands of people. And we had our mask, of course, but that was the first time I tested it. And uh, that was 13, 14 days ago and no symptoms. So thank you, God. <laughs> um, and, and everyone you know, else that has done all the amazing things with the vaccinations and the masks and everything else to keep myself and my family safe, but I, I did test it. So it was a bit scary, but I think for me, that was a mental, you know, psychology variable thinking like, you know what, maybe we have gotten to that point, right? Yeah, I think so. And uh, you're, you're far more um, aggressive than me and you're uh, dipping your toe in the water. Uh, you know, my, the extent of my exposure was, should I have a one-on-one -on -one coffee meeting with somebody? <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> so I, I'm not even I, going <laughs> near like, Bars, restaurants, like that to me is just a whole new world still out there. Um, Fair. <laughs> plus, I'm I'm like I'm I'm really old compared to you, right? So I, I I'm probably past the whole bar thing anyway. <laughs> well, th that Sunday morning, I felt like I was past it too. <laughs> so, so, um, but uh, so tell me this: new job, new you, or maybe not new you, but new job. T tell, tell us about it and what's your role? Yeah, so, you know, I wouldn't say new me. I would say evolving me. Uh, I think my, evolving, yeah. my new role um, as a partner at Within People is really the next step in my evolution and my growth as someone who really cares about how to shape and build on the experience that people have at work and how to influence how leaders create amazing workplaces. Um, so I, mm. I, I came from a company called Jostle, which is a tech company here in Vancouver that uh, was really focused on building a piece of technology to help connect and enable and, and uh, engage people at work. And my job there was really around understanding, well, what's going on at work and what are the levers that leaders can play with and how do you create a more human-centric workplace in, you know, at, at the same time. And that really inspired a, a, or sparked an interest in me in, in thinking about how I can really maximize my impact and what's the best way for me to go about being Bev in the world and having a voice and influencing and helping improve conditions and shape culture for people who go to work every day. And so Within People is a group of business strategists. Uh, we are a completely dispersed partnership uh, and self-managed. And we are trying to create a new blueprint for 21st century business. And 
packed into that is a desire for us to help people find purpose and grow. And not only as individuals and as leaders, but in terms of the cultures and workplace experiences that leaders are creating for people. So so I'm very well aligned with the, the, the passion and the, the focus at Within People. Um, it's, it's an opportunity for me to work with various organizations and leaders to really understand their unique needs and to help them along their journey of, of crafting purposeful organizations that are amazing places for their people to work within. So, um, so I think I've really doubled down on, on what I, I, you know, what I'm passionate about, the things that I believe I can change. And I just remain really, really excited and interested in seeing how work is going to evolve through the pandemic as we move into this more endemic state where work has changed forever, right? Jump in. No, that's so, no, that's so true. Work has changed forever. I I, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just going to ask when you, when you say, when you utilize the word and your actual title partner, what does that mean in capacity? Like, what do you, are you more on now? Are you more on the pure um, strategic direction of the business model itself? services, programs, um, hiring and building out the team internally operations? Or are you still kind of getting your hands dirty? Yeah, I'm most certainly still getting my hands dirty. But um, in my capacity as partner, um, so we are a global collective of, of folks who we call ourselves partners. Uh, we are not employees of within people. We are associated with within people through our collective desire to work together. Um, Got it. And we act in the capacity as, uh, you know, coaches, strategic advisors, uh, brand and, and culture experts. And really, we are not the traditional consultant uh, mindset. Like we're actually trying to break that mold where we're not arriving with all the answers for anybody or anyone that we might work with. We are facilitators of a journey that helps them uncover uh, the answers for themselves. So very collaborative, um, very empathetic, um, very, um, you know, friendly, helpful attitude to helping people find greater clarity and purpose, whether that's an individual leader. So a leader who's really trying to develop a certain way of being, or perhaps it's a company that is... You know, they've either grown through scaling quickly or they've recently merged. Um, you know, perhaps it's a company that is newly dispersed and they're not sure how to maintain their culture. Uh, we, we help all sorts of shapes and sizes of business uh, set their compass and move towards their, their, their purpose. So very, very interesting in terms of the exposure that, that gives us, right? We, we get to understand mm. all sorts of business. Um, which is quite different from when I was at my prior company where I was wearing the hat of the people culture ops um, person for some of the time. Um, And I was most certainly in the weeds with helping shape culture and grow people within the confines of that business. Um, Now I'm, I'm able to actually do that, but in a different capacity with more than one company. So I might be working with, you know, three or four businesses or four or five leaders at any one time. So it really does give me the ability to have greater exposure and impact. But I'm also learning 
about different industries, different styles of leadership, different trends, different things that are impacting people out there. Um, so it's a really interesting viewpoint, I think, than, rather than being embedded within an organization. Let, let's, let's get this show on the road here. Let me ask you this first question, and this is completely ad hoc. You know, um, God has blessed me with the amazing ability to, uh, to have ADD at a, at a very literal level. <laughs> um, I don't know if you ever heard of this, but they say some of the greatest writers and, and, and actors and creatives and entrepreneurs, and, you know, they always say some of them actually suffer and deal with uh, severe ADD. And I don't know if I would put myself in the, the term of great, but I actually do suffer from that. So an idea literally popped in my head as you were talking. That's not on the traditional uh, question sheet that we have here. Um, right. My background overall, as I shared with you on your podcast or the previous podcast, rather, you know, I've spent a lot of time building brands. That's really who I am at my core before I even got into the world of people operations and things of that nature. And the startup landscape, big business landscape, private equity, um, venture capital, you know, when you're taking multiple organizations and merging them together, or you're taking new teams and merging them together, what's your point of view around this following question? Everything that I'm about, hence the title, Employees First, Business Second is about putting employees first. Um, something that I say very directly around that is I don't always mean, quote unquote, that employees are right or that I'm going to coddle. A lot of folks think that that's what I mean. When I say employees first, I mean utilize employee data, perspectives, thoughts first, ideals first, narrative first. Um boots on the ground, aka the folks that are actually going to get the work done. I want to know from them around how we can do something better or different. I want to know what they want to experience. I want to gather that information proactively. I hate reactive. Um, so what are your thoughts around when you're talking, you know, when you think about, and I don't know if you've come in contact with this particular situation with your new role here, but when you think about merging two teams together, or you think about merging two companies together, or you think about change management what would you recommend utilizing that employees first mindset? What, what data would you collect from the employees? Let's move the leaders from this conversation for a moment. But what would you, you know, what would you recommend organizations pull, extract proactively from the humans that are actually doing 90% of the work first to then um, to then better, better create your strategy or your or your method of, to your madness, or your your overall trajectory of how you'll kind of work through that company and help them go through that change in management, or that merger, or that acquisition, or the combination of bringing two brilliant teams together. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So first, I, I'll, I'll say that I, you know, one of the reasons that I think you and I really had a great conversation the, the first time we met online was this agreement around employees first, business second, and, and it and. For me, that really can be expressed in terms of um, being employee-centric first. And what that means is to me, and I think this will answer your question, is we need to be looking at our employees as the most critical inputs within our organization. They are they're the living, breathing part of our organization. And if we're going to make any decisions, we need to be informed by the people who are actually working in our, our organizations, right? Um, so I think that listening is a really key part of 
our relationship with our employees. And I, I'm not a big advocate of annual employment engagement surveys. Um, I'm not an, a fan of performance management programs. I think you need to have ears on the ground with people all day, every day within an organization. And that means listening for not only words that are, are spoken, but listening for the attitude that people have, how they show up, how they're interacting, observing as much as, like using your eyes as much as using your, your ears. And I think where that really becomes most critical is in the relationship between managers or supervisors or leaders or whatever you call them in your organization and your direct reports. And I think what that allows us to do is to get down to like the core operating units within an organization are those small clusters of people, right? So it's a manager and maybe six or seven people. Like I don't think you can have more than that reporting into a person without it being completely unproductive in terms of being able to hear and act on what you're seeing and hearing from your people. So I think really strong relationships between managers and their direct reports and both ways you know it, it definitely goes both ways but I, I think if if I was the CEO of an organization I would be thinking about really getting granular with how are we structured to enable those relationships to take place and especially if you are a fully dispersed or hybrid even organization you're not going to be able to rely on the in-person um connection of those people either so you're not going to readily be able to observe how people are doing and how they're feeling so you've got to look for ways and I mean using tools and technology is one way to do that but it's also in the quality of relationships that you are nurturing between people and their leaders and or their managers and that's where it comes down to People who are responsible for people have got a big job ahead of them because in this changing landscape of work with the great resignation and people reprioritizing what they want from work and what they're prepared to do in their workplace and in their work day, um, if you are not working on yourself as a leader to be taking care of your people and to understand what it is that they need and how they want to be treated and included, uh, you're going to really struggle to keep people and to have a productive and profitable organization. You ready for another ADD moment? <laughs> sure. So does that does that mm -hmm. answer your question before you hop on to the next one? It does. It does. It's, I'm going to kind of connect this this next thought as well. Have you ever had aspirations of um, potentially becoming like a CEO yourself? I did in the early days of my career when I thought that power resided at the top of the organization uh, and I've mm. matured and grown and learned and fallen down a few times in my ego and my you know growing in my humility as a leader um, I think when I first started out I I thought that being the CEO was the pinnacle and that was where all the power sat as I've grown and become more aware of myself and what I want and where I can actually um, have an impact, it's become less of a desire for me because I, th I mm. think I can have as much of an impact anywhere in the organization with the right mindset. That's fair. That's fair. Well, well let's, let's imagine you were today for a minute. Let's play a, little, let's play a little game here. Imagine you're the CEO of a brand and you have a few managers that have, like you said, six, seven, eight, 
let's maybe even say nine to 10 um, folks that are reporting directly to them, right? How do you think the structure from an accountability perspective, right? Because I have this, and I'm working with the company right now in a volunteer capacity um, with an organization. They're about, probably about 350 people. And something that I've been pushing very heavily is the the notion that leaders that are leader are leaders of people, because I think there's two actually types of leaders on another kind of sidebar frank, um, moment. I think you can have leaders that are just like um, pure operations, tactical, um, subject matter, ex, you know, subject matter expert type leader. And then I think you have a people leader. But let's assume in the people leader category, um, when you're working with your team, how do you as a CEO, if you have a, a fleet of managers and leaders and directors and things of that nature, VPs, how are you holding them accountable around the people variables from this angle? And I always talk about this and I'm going to give you a very visceral uh, example. How do you hold them accountable from the angle of you would strongly consider removing them from the org, even though they're making a very significant impact on the bottom line? How do you remove them from the org because they're not paying at enough attention to the contextual realities and experiences that their particular team wants to have at the company? How do you hold them accountable in a structured structured and process-driven way that the managers know what they get in they, what they're getting into the ceo feels comfortable doing so and everyone across the company understands that that's the standard because you and i both know there are thousands of companies across the globe that are that have very 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 successful leaders in leadership positions that are again either subject matter experts they understand the market incredibly well they uh, are bringing lots of innovation to the table and they're just so brilliant and and and, and so many ceos are like I, I can't lose jeff i i can't lose susan i can't i can't lose that person what they bring to the table to this business and where we are right now is so impactful i'm sorry that three people on their team left i'm sorry that three people on their team are not being as productive but i need this person for x y and z how do you get through to a CEO, or in this example, if you are the CEO, how do you wrap your head around, you know what, I need to build some accountability systems and, and development measures around my leaders where I will literally make a strong consideration to remove them from the org because they are not cutting it to make the experience contextual for their team of eight. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I think that can be a, a, a tricky moment for CEOs uh, to contemplate. Um, I think f for me, I would have to zoom out a bit and, and question what my overall objective is with the organization and whether I care about building a place where people want to come and be. And maybe the structure you have right now is such that you've got this toxic manager and you know three of their people have left, but so what? Um, run the tape forward, um, how much of that revolving door are you prepared to stomach as a, as a CEO? And it's likely going to get worse because I, I feel like the individual leader will probably be emboldened to continue on with the behaviors that they are demonstrating. And I think that you really do need to take a longer range view at it. And you, you've got to decide whether you want to be building a certain kind of culture or not. Um, whether you whether you know it or not, you're building a culture as a CEO. Whether you want to be intentional with the type of culture is a completely different question and conversation, right? 
um, you know, I, I think when it comes to dealing with individual leaders that are rock stars in, you know, against some measures, but are failing miserably against the people measure, I think you've got to meet those people where they are and and really try and see what their capacity for change is, um, see what their capacity for self-work is. Like, would they hear what you need them to hear? Uh, do you make a business case clearly enough for them around why it's important that we are shifting and evolving how we work with people in leader subordinate type arrangements? And is it possible for that person to, to make the changes that are needed? And what gets unlocked for that person if they start to shift themselves to a more people-centric way of showing up as a leader, right? Um, I think it's easy for people to say that, well, I, change is hard and I can't change. I am who I am. I'm here to do this job. And if you don't like it, well, fire me. Um, I think you're always going to have some of those people. And y- you probably should fire that person. Uh, in that moment um, but I think ultimately if if it was me as the CEO in that organization I would really be questioning like what is my what is the purpose of the organization and what are the the, the values associated with that purpose how do we actually come together and work on a day-to-day basis and is it okay for a select group of leaders who might be high performers to have a different set of rules for operating within the culture because that's ultimately what happens, right? When you have these rock stars, you allow them to play by a different set of rules. And I, I think those days are past. Like, I, I honestly think that we have had such a seismic shift in what we find acceptable as individuals in workplaces now that there is change coming whether you like it or not. So I, I think you need to think very carefully as a CEO um, about staying in the status quo. No, that's totally right. And, 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 and folks know, you know, my, my opinion is pretty visceral and pretty, you know, pretty, pretty outlandish. I'll I'll say this to kind of add to what you're saying. I agree with everything you're saying. You know, the CEO really does need to assess things and, and make the decision around what type of not only culture, but what are the just true, the goals of the organization? You know, I, I find myself going back and forth from like a capitalist mindset to a humanistic kind of like Gandhi-esque mindset. I find myself kind of teetering in both lanes because on one angle, right? Like I'll give you a, a really perfect example. On one angle, if you're a growing startup and you have decided to not take venture capital or angel investment and quite literally this new account or this new client or this new partner and the 180,000 of those dollars are going to be connected to the next three months of salaries and you need that money quite literally to keep the doors open. There's the CEO brain in me that's like, do I remove Dave or do I push through and set new rules for Dave just for a moment? Because no matter how much training I do, how much how much change management change management from a psychology level that I do, I don't think Dave's going to change in three months enough for me to feel comfortable. Yet, if I want to save everyone else, maybe I have to let a few catch this fire moment. I know that sounds so bad to say, but I, but there is a part of my brain that understands that. But on the complete opposite of that, you know, I use Gary Vaynerchuk as an example to be able to play in the world of business. 
at a very high level, let's call it VP level and above, is such a such an amazing moment. Like to be able to make 100, 200, 300, 400, 500,000 dollars a year and up to to be an executive inside of an organization and to even run a company is such a blessing that I do often question to myself, well, if we're not having payroll issues, if we're not so stuck financially and if we're doing very well, do I really want to hurt the, the 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 mindset, the ego, the mentality, the mental health of another human just to make another dollar? Like, is it is it is it is it really worth it from that angle? Do, you know, the question I ask all the time is like, you know, and, and what I always think about is if I'm if if I'm a leader, in my what what am I you know what am I what's what's my my daughter or my son thinking fifteen years down the road? If they run into a, a former a former employee of mine, like, and they have a conversation for fifteen minutes about the experience working at my organization, how would I feel going back home and having dinner or having a glass of wine with my daughter and and talking through that conversation? Like, how would I honestly feel about that? And, and I know that I kind of took a completely different direction, but I don't know. Do you empathize with that? Like, I sit in the middle sometimes, trying to really understand how I personally would navigate those two different waters because. They're completely two extremes, but they're extremes, Bev, that are real. Like there are really startups out here that cannot fire or remove those folks because if they do, there's a pretty objective opportunity for the company to go under. And then there's companies over here that are thriving and doing well that are just so hungry to make that next dollar, so hungry to to get this product out by the by the 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 projected dates of the consumers where if you got it out three months later, yeah, your consumers would be upset and maybe you'd make a little less money and maybe you'd have a little less market share, but the people would be happier. And your daughter, 15 years later, if they ran into an, uh, an employee of yours would probably say better things, right? So what are your final thoughts on that? Yeah, I think there is a bit of a moral quandary there. You know, I, I think it is something that is really hard for CEOs and other VP level executives to ponder, right? And I guess to your point about, you know, what would your daughter say 15 years later to someone who worked for you? I, I think we're, we're, we're arriving in this moment where we have the, the opportunity to rethink how business is conducted. And we have an opportunity to think about it's not profits over people or people over profit even it's it's about making the right choices and appreciating the cho- the impact of our choices at scale and i think we've come out of an era of um, you know businesses that are completely profit driven where there is no regard for the long term impact of the decisions they make and the way that they treat their their staff um, the impacts they have on greater society, the impact they have on the environment through their procurement production um, processes. And I think we just are arriving in this era where more and more leaders day by day are waking up to the realization that it really is about people first and good things follow when you actually make people first decisions. And the people first decision might be as close as, well, what am I doing as an individual that makes my direct report feel really great or really bad? Or it might be, what is best for society in how we think about procuring something or the water that we are um, 
you know, using to create our product and we're putting all these terrible chemicals in the downstream rivers and lakes if, you know, that's the thing you're building. Um, I think there's just this greater awareness around being accountable to your earlier question around accountability. I think we're starting to see that that leaders and organizations are realizing that there is a greater common good that we all need to be striving for. And it's going to take time. Like we're nowhere near there yet. Um, There are still toxic leaders. There are still toxic workplace cultures. There are many organizations that add toxicity into the world. Um, But I feel more than ever before, we are standing at the beginning of the greatest shift in what we find to be acceptable um, as a society and the work we do together than ever before. So that's a bit of a roundabout way to answer your question, but uh, I, th- I think that I'm feeling more optimistic than I have in a long time about the potential we have at work and the potential we have to build amazing organizations where people can come and be creative and fulfilled and do awesome, cool things that humans do when we come together in a positive way. No, that, that was an amazing, uh, that was an amazing response, Bev. I, I appreciate that. It is a tough decision. It, it is, it is a rough moment and, and we are, and we are in a new moment. And I think, you know, being, you know, being a, a very young lad myself, you know, I think I'm, I'm old enough to know what it, used to feel like and I'm still young enough I think to be so engaged with all the new technologies and all the new systems and all the new perspectives and and I'm still connected to again going back to to what we were talking about prior in in the beginning of this episode going back to my fiance's you know sister you know I'm still young enough to see and hear and understand what the next generation what they won't accept like quite literally and what they're actually are looking for um, so it is really fascinating. How do we how do we reframe the traditional mindset to this to this new kind of way of working and the new leader, right? Like how do we how do we do that in a way that is both you know, here's a real good question actually. Here's here's how I want to frame this question because I'm going through this literally right now. The company that I work with in a volunteer position uh, shout out to Russ. He's an amazing, amazing, amazing CEO. Uh, he's a visionary. I, I actually, we're very similar because again, going back to my original kind of upbringing professionally, I'm, I'm a little bit more of a CEO, if you want to say that, than I am, you know, uh, quote unquote, of people. So I, I understand a lot about Russ's perspectives and, and, and the way he works. But with every great visionary, with every great CEO, there's obviously flaws. And one thing that Russ has been pushing back very gently and empathetically around is the following. How do we change Russ's mindset and capabilities from an EQ perspective and then take those changes and make the true operational shifts in how he goes about being a leader as a CEO in the company while not hijacking the day-to-day? So something that I try to push heavy on is I try to push very aggressively on change management. I try to have very deep. Oh, I apologize, Beth. One second here. We're getting some alarms going off. One second. All right. I'll edit that out. We just uh, we just had a little fire truck situation. Did you hear that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No worries. Um, so essentially, I push very heavily on deep psychological conversations Um 
deep personal development conversations, trying to get him to see things from different narratives and points of views and explaining this employee's first data and just driving all this information into his brain and, and having one-on-one conversations with leaders. And, and, I, and I do all of this change management. And I find at times where we, I don't want to call it butt heads, but I find at times where I'm trying to shift him going from the traditional leadership mindset to the new age, you know, new format of what leaders need to be doing in today's age. He says, he says to me all the time, he says, AJ, well, he actually calls me Anthony, which I keep telling him, do not call me Anthony, but I love you, Russ. Uh, he, says, he says, Anthony, I love everything you're talking about. I love the one-on-ones. I love you sitting down with my leaders. I love you sitting down with me. But how do we do this with speed and efficiency to keep up with the pace of the day-to-day business? We still have things to do. We still have work to accomplish. And how do we keep up with the pace of our work while not losing out on many of the employees that have voiced their opinions around why they left due to some of these issues. How, 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 do, we, how do we balance that? And I'll tell you before you give your response, Bev, one thing that I pushed heavy on, and it's probably not popular in the, the traditional business world, I'm, all, I'm a big fan of pausing, personally. Like, obviously, you can't shut down the business, but I'm a big fan of, like, nothing new. Like, like everything that you're doing right now to keep payroll coming in, do that and then nothing else. I'm a big fan of like shut down, just keep things on autopilot and let's really make change, right? Taking a step back to take seven steps forward. What are your thoughts on all of that? Okay, a lot to unpack there. I'll do my best. Um, Look, I, I think that there is a lot of pressure coming from downward from you know social change that is pushing organizations to need to be better uh, trends and and you know attitudes that are changing within society generally that are causing us to rethink our workplaces as leaders so there's you know there's a lot of pressure that is coming downward but there's also upward pressure that is coming from people within organizations so I think CEOs and executive folks, or anyone who's really in a in a, a decision making capacity, um, needs to be th- aware of the fact that not changing is not an option, right? So, where does that start? Where's the easiest place that you can actually start to have change, and that is within each of us, within ourselves. And I think the bare minimum that a CEO could be doing today is. First of all, starting with him or her or themselves, Um, but then setting the expectation that individuals need to change within an organization. And you can do that even if you've got work that needs to be done and things that need to be realized and goals that have to be reached. We all have that in our day to day. You can still be doing work on yourself even in the simplest and smallest of ways. And when you start to have commitment to even small changes I think it does add up and I think it gets noticed and I think when you live that out loud as well within your organization people around you pick up on that and they start to work on themselves and they start to do great things that are lots of small things adding up to lots of big things so I agree with you around the pausing side of things I think that this is the time if you are having some conflict about where to go next with your organization and what to do 
don't focus on the tactical transactional things. We really need leaders to be maturing and thinking about the relational side of organizations. So just adding and chasing the next shiny thing is not going to help us grow and build organizations or people. So, you know, I, th- I think that anybody can say, well, I'm too busy or I've got things to do or I'm just not interested in changing myself. I, I think the time for that is over, quite frankly. Uh, I think every single one of us who shows up to work every day needs to be adopting a growth mindset and needs to be thinking about the work we can do on ourselves first. Whether or not we are a manager, whether or not we are responsible for a business unit or people within it, I just think that collectively, if we don't all start showing up and being responsible and accountable as individuals, collectively, that's going to be problematic. And we will then start to bring back some of the 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 bad habits and the structural problems that we had prior to the pandemic that we now have the opportunity to really make a difference with. So admittedly, that's, you know, that is very aspirational and I, I, I may, may be criticized for living in a dreamland with thinking that that is the way forward. Um, but I honestly do think that if you're not prepared to work on yourself as a person and identify the things that you need to be better at as it relates to how you work with others and how you make others feel, um, we're not going to see progress in the way that we need to see it in a number of ways. So is that an, is that an acceptable answer? <laughs> Hey Bev, you've been you've been you've been dropping bombs all day. That's a that's a that's a phenomenal answer. You know, I'll I'll say one thing here and then get your 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 two cents and then we'll switch over to the final few questions here. Mm-hmm. Um I talk about ego a lot. You know, I in my personal world, um, let me see how I want to word this. Because I have, you know, I want to be uh in my personal world, I indulge. I, I'm I'm a lot of things for my mother, for my fiance, to some of our fiance's best friends, to just a lot of people in my life from like a personal development Tony Robbins esque type human. I do a lot of listening and 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 conversations and, and and live heavily into empathy and really try to support them around a lot of variables. And something I often talk to them about, I've done a lot of research like at, at the psychological level, at the neuroscience level of where ego comes from and, and, and why human beings have ego and, and how ego at times can protect us, but at the same time, how ego can, can put us in a, in a dangerous spot, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think ego is also connected to some of the things that we've been talking about today. Going back to the prior example a few a few moments ago where let's assume you're a part of a company that is doing well, you're not having payroll issues, you're not having financial troubles, you do have a nice positioning in the market. I think a lot of times when organizations are afraid to pause or afraid to stop, you know, I was on the record, for example, uh, I was a, I was a head of people for a company uh, for three years ago. And I got to remember because of COVID, COVID has been such a, I got to remember, it's been two years, Beth. 
like like quite literally two years. So I gotta I always have to like brace myself to like when I do the math in my head a bit of dates, but um because it feels like such a whirlwind. Um so a few years ago I was getting into a new organization, and you know how it is, right? You get into a new organization, especially as a head of people role, you do kind of like that first month listening tour. You're sitting in on operations meetings, you're sitting in on marketing meetings, you're sitting in with the other HR executives, you're just sitting in listening, collecting data, sitting down with the you know the the head of people, sitting down with the 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 um the, the head of product and the CEO and all these different things, right? And inevitably we get to a point where it's kind of similar to what Russ is going through, where I just ask the big bold question. I say, Well, what if we stop everything for a second? And they're like, what do you mean? And I gave them an example. Like, nah, it's literally stop everything. But what if we don't do anything new? What if we set everything down? And what if we just pause for a second and do X, Y, and Z? And I presented a whole plan. And the CEO stepped in and he said, uh, well, we would lose a little bit of positioning in the market. Um, we wouldn't be able to get this new program rolled out, this new product rolled out, this, 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 this. And inevitably through a long conversation, I found out that ego was the core of everything. The CEO personally had a lot to do with the innovation and the ideation of these new products and innovations and programs. The CEO had a strong desire to hit that bonus and all these other things. And so what are your quick thoughts on just the the ego variable? Like I ask leaders all the time since that moment, but what if we don't? Like, like what if, what if the product comes out six months later? What if 20% of our consumers aren't happy? Like what? What what are we actually talking about here from that angle? Is it just you, the three C, you know, the three executives, C-suite level executives at, at the top, pushing and and beating the ego drum that this needs to happen at this time, or are we really trying to get better for the future? Right, very similar to the diet world. If I eat a salad this evening, Bev, which I plan on doing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Am I going to lose 40 pounds overnight or is it going to take me six months of eating salads and going to the gym and watching my macros and my carbs? And so, you know, you, you do the hard work, which seems like in the moment, it doesn't seem like you're making too much of a progression to get the benefits long term. So what are your thoughts on the ego play that I think a lot of leaders kind of uh, internalize and are not willing to admit? What are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, I think ego is largely driven by how we traditionally reward people in business settings. And so I think we need to dismantle and reframe reward systems, first of all, because if if we change the measure for success from being a profit-based or a, you know, a, a quantitative measure to being more qualitative, um, I think you see some easing of the the, the prominence of ego in decision making, right? So if, if your measure of success as a leader was some sort of expression of, of, of happiness or well-being of your people, rather than meeting a financial target, what does that do for us in terms of changing the actions of that person in meeting those targets, right? So I, I think we really need to be taking a critical look at if we're expecting to unlearn old ways of leading we've got to unlearn ways of rewarding people for their behaviors and i think for too long the reason why uh, we've had such an entrenched way of unhealthy leadership is because we keep rewarding people for bad behavior 
So let's take a moment, let's pause to your, you know, to use your words and actually think about what are the desirable behaviors we want and, and making sure that the way we, we benefit or reward people is matching um, those outcomes, right? So I think that there is architecturally within organizations, there is a lot that we need to do to start creating places where people can show up in people-centric ways and can be rewarded for doing that. So I would say if I was pressed for, for an answer on it, I, you know, that's the first place I would look. I appreciate, I appreciate that response. I really do. I think that's smart. I think that's right. And, um, Again, dropping bombs. So I appreciate that. Let, let, me, let me ask you this final question here. We talked a lot about ego, ego and EQ and leadership. And, and frankly, we talked a lot about situational leadership if we had to put it in, in a category. And I mentioned empathy and we talked about patience and other variables, right? How do, how do we measure that impact to the organization, right? So something, and, I, and I'm, I'm admitting this. Being someone that didn't traditionally grow up in the HR world, I do a lot of strategy work, conversations, change management. Um, I do a lot of um, facilitation. Um, I typically need a team around me to kind of help bring a lot of what I want to do inside of organizations to light. Something that I've been fascinated around and I've tried to get better at it is measuring people analytics, data. Like I've tried to double down, whether it's certifications, building out a network around me. When and if I go back in an organization, I really would like to have a little bit of a budget to have just a rock star in that department next to me. When we talk about some of these softer variables, how do we measure it? How do we measure it to, to keep and sustain leaders that we actually want to have in our organizations in the company, right? Back to, should we fire leaders that have a lack of those EQ variables and some of those softer skills? And then how do we measure it from a business perspective? How do we roll out um, some data for our C-suite executives and say, based off of an improvement around situational leadership, based off an improvement of empathy at a strategic level, based off of an improvement of patience, based off of our ability to conduct better change management, based off of creating a better experience for our people around, again, softer variables. How do we show them that data? How do we measure it? What are your, what are your brief thoughts? Because there's a lot of information out there, Bev, but I think, I think there's many points of views and many ways of going about it. And I'm so fascinated by your point of view on the, on the measuring piece and the, the pure connecting it to the pure outcomes of the business piece. Yeah. Look, I think from a measurement point of view, that's probably one of the culprits too, for why, um, you know, traditional leadership styles has persisted is because it's, it's much easier to measure something, um, you know, like, profit and loss or, you know, how well we did or, um, you know, expressing something in financial terms is far easier than expressing sentiment, for example, um, of how our people are feeling on any given day. Um, however, I, I would say that as attitudes have been evolving and changing, so too has our access to data. And I think the the HR tech and the HR data space and the, the analytics space around understanding human sentiment at work has really matured in the last 
three, four years. So I, th I think it's, it's about having rigor. It's about setting up some systems and processes in place for us to be able to, to gather and analyze data in more effective, mature ways. Um, but even if you're not in a position as an organization to implement these rigid processes around being able to track how people are feeling, um, you know, year over year or month over month, there are some really quick um, hints for you that might help you understand how you're doing on the more human-centric end of the, the, the scale. And things like your retention rate, um, you know, are people staying for a long time? Are they leaving quickly? Now, I realize there are other variables at play with those types of things. Um, but I, I just, I think that even just anecdotal information is so valuable. You don't need to do a survey in order to get data these days, right? Um, you can do a quick scan of your people and understand whether they are generally unhappy or generally happy at what they're doing or how they feel about working with you. Um, you just need a little bit of awareness. Um, now, it, get, it does get harder, admittedly. Qualitative data is much harder to make sense of. But I'm just saying that even if you don't think you're a data-centric or data-oriented organization, the data is there for you. You might just need to have a different attitude and a different lens to gather and understand what the data is telling you. So I think it's incredibly important that we do start to get some um, discipline around measuring the impact of some of those relational or softer variables, as you you called them. Um, and again, it's going to come back for me to the individual leader needs to be willing to look for that information and be dedicated to doing something about because that's the other side of the coin for data, right? Um, it's one thing to gather it. It's another thing to actually do something about it. And that's why employee engagement surveys fail a lot of the time is because Companies are just doing it to check a box to say they've done their listening, but they're actually not taking any action to what they've heard. So, you know, I, th I think you should only measure what you're prepared to respond to. Um, but the time is also over for us to not be taking an analytical approach to measuring sentiment and the experience that people are having at work. I love what you just said at the end, and this is how we'll wrap. Only measure... And I'm typing this out because I think I may make this the title of the podcast. Only measure what you're prepared to respond to. Is that what you said? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if don't do a survey if you're not prepared to take action. Like, yeah. don't do a pulse check if you're not prepared to hear what's being said and take action. Um, rather, don't do it. It's probably less harmful to not do it. <laughs> no, that... <laughs> That is so right. That is an amazing. That's a tweet, actually. That I'm like, that, that, but that's an amazing statement, and that's so true. I think, um, you know, it's very similar in, in relationships as well. Like, you know, and this is probably a younger generation thing, but you know, we have couples out here looking through each other's phones and checking each other's, you know, link, you know, Twitter messages and threads and trying to find is this person doing anything wrong. It's like, look, if if you're gonna go looking for something, you're probably gonna find something bad from the relationship perspective. And I think unless you're prepared to deal with what you're about to find, probably shouldn't go digging. It's the same thing inside of companies. Unless you're prepared from a bandwidth perspective, from a psychology perspective, from you know having the right leaders in-house to, to support the change management that's about to come, even some of the financial variables that you may need to gear up, unless you're prepared to make the change, 
it's probably best to just hold off on that on pulling that data and understanding that data. And that's okay sometimes. That's okay sometimes to to, to wait until you are ready. So um any last final words, plug anything you want to plug, and then I'll get you out of here. Yeah, thank you. This has been a, a really uh, interesting and enlightening conversation, as always. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me to chat with you. Um, I mean, we could go on and on, right? Like, there's there's so much depth here. There's this, but there's so much promise here for us. And you know, I I think that we just need to keep going, one leader and one culture at a time, right? And mm. um, you know, the work that I'm doing at at within is is really helping people find purpose and grow and I, I think that that is sometimes the heart of it right is people just don't know where they're going um so having a moment at this this juncture in the development of organizations to think about where you're headed is so critical because a lot of the time other things will fall out of that but if you don't know where you're headed uh it's it's sometimes harder to to move forward and that's when we fall into old ways of doing things and we perpetuate old habits and bad ways of leading so that's um, I'm personally feeling really pumped about where we are. Um, I know there's a lot of work to do. There's a ton of work to do, but I, I feel like we really have such an opportunity here and uh, we just need to keep going and, and keep working at it and helping people have amazing days at work. Well, thank you as always. We finally did it. We finally did it. It's taken us a little while, but, um, you know, it was worth the wait. So thank you. <laughs> I appreciate, no, I appreciate you. Now, I'm, I'm a man of my word. I, I don't like to lose great relationships by not showing up. And uh, so we finally did it. Thank you. You you know Riverside very well. Let's end this and wait for the confetti to, to come off as a celebration to make sure everything's Fantastic. uploaded correctly. But um, thank you again so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much. Great to chat.